Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast which brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles, and we're very pleased to say as well that in the podcast today we'll have a La Liga special on Barcelona's mess and presidential election, which is reportedly going to clear up some of that particular crisis that the Camp Nou club are in. First, however, we're going to report... As always, some breaking news. Uh, it concerns Manchester United. And uh, Duncan, we know that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has had more than his fair share of challenges this season with regards to both uh, the club's form as well as uh, team selection. And, of course, we'll come to the Donkey Award later in the pod with regards to players arguing with each other. But one of them has been... Um, more recently, the fight for the number one spot between David De Gea and Dean Henderson. And you have information regarding uh, what United may be planning to do with regards to um, solving that problem uh, come the summer transfer window. Yeah, this is this is fascinating because what we have been watching is a, a supposedly a straight out fight between David De Gea and Dean Henderson for the number one shirt at Manchester United. And if you go back to last year's podcast, you will hear a number of episodes where we talked um, about Dean Henderson's ambitions to become number one goalkeeper at Manchester United and the way he um, went into contract talks with the club uh, saying, I will only sign an extension if I have the opportunity to prove myself number one. Otherwise, I'd, I'd prefer um, to go on loan elsewhere or to be sold to another Premier League club. Um, I think it's well known how ambitious and self-confident he is that he sees himself as not only Manchester United's best goalkeeper, but as England's best goalkeeper. He wants to be England's goalkeeper at the European Championships. Eventually, the resolution was, despite the new contract given to De Gea in September 2019, which made him the Premier League's best paid player on 15 million euros net a season. Resolution was that Henderson got a big pay rise, a contract until 2025, and a promise that he would be allowed to fight it out with De Gea, that the, the, the goalkeeper's position would be judged meritocratically, that whoever performed best uh, in training and when they got into the first team shirt would retain the shirt. You recently reported that Henderson was unhappy and felt that he had not been treated fairly by Solskjaer um, and that meritocratic selection principle hadn't been put in place and that De Gea was keeping the shirt regardless of mistakes he made. Now, the information I have is that for next season, neither of the goalkeepers is necessarily going to be first choice at Manchester United, that the club are looking at alternative options in this position. Um, and are looking at the top of the market. They're looking for a high-quality goalkeeper um, to see if the solution could be neither Henderson, who has admirers elsewhere in the Premier League, and you will have noted in recent weeks stories that Chelsea, um, Tottenham Hotspur and West Ham United are suitors of his, which I, I don't think are coincidental given the pressure Henderson has been put putting on the club to be played. Um, nor De Gea as number one, um, but bring in someone else um, on a lower salary, obviously, than, than De Gea's 50 million euros and, uh, and have him as starter. Um, they, if they were to go down that route, you would see, I think, Henderson being sold, so cashing in on his value in the English market. Um, the interesting aspect is what happens with De Gea because that um, salary... Uh, of 50 million euros net has become a kind of millstone um, for Manchester United in the sense that they are obliged to play him. Um, and it, I think, is very difficult to see where his exit is 
um, certainly on a transfer fee, um, to get a club who has the financial capability in the current market to pay Manchester United a transfer fee for De Gea and take on his wages, um, possibly through a loan deal. Um, and then perhaps even a loan deal in which uh, Manchester United would subsidise some of those wages. But but what you have here, I think, is a club looking at all their options, looking at unexpected options, and an indication that they're not particularly happy with either of the players, um, and certainly not as convinced as it would seem from some public statements that Henderson is indeed the answer regardless of his confidence and his ambition, um, if they're looking for alternatives in this position and top goalkeepers and they know that Henderson wants to play, then I think Henderson has some way to go yet to convince Solskjaer and Manchester United that he is the right solution. And this obviously comes in a period in which De Gea has been allowed um, uh, leave for personal reasons with his um, partner just about to give birth. And, uh, and the expectation that Henderson will play the next five consecutive games for Manchester United. So it's coming in a context where Henderson will have that chance to prove whether he's as good as he thinks he is and, uh, and, and to convince United that if they're going to change the hair, don't go and sign a, a top goalkeeper from elsewhere, but give the shirt to me and use some of the money you save on salary for that top goalkeeper in other areas of the team where you want to recruit. And yes, they want to recruit at centre-back. Um, they maybe have to recruit at striker because uh, retaining a Dinson Cavani for a, a second season is going to be very expensive for them. And there are other areas in which they would like to add, in which Solskjaer would like to strengthen the team um, to move further towards that cultural reboot. And... Um, have a chance of uh, winning the Premier League. With Henderson, it's um, strange situation. As we reported on the pod uh, last summer, he was convinced to come back to Manchester United, not just by the offer of a new contract, Duncan, but also by um, the promise that he would be a level playing field in terms of he and De Gea um, competing for the um, starting place as goalkeeper. Um, he obviously doesn't feel, and certainly his representatives don't feel, that that has been honoured. It seems like a make-or-break period for Henderson. We know that he has um, that ambition to be England's number one keeper in this summer's European Championships, uh, assuming that they do go ahead as planned. And now um, he has these five, maybe six games um to uh, establish himself uh, and keep De Gea out of the team. But the other interesting and intriguing aspect of this is that De Gea's partner, um, who has, is expecting their first child, has chosen to remain in Spain and live there. Um, so obviously they are effectively living apart. Um, De Gea has not hidden his... Um, hope or expectation that he would return back to his native country and plays football there. Uh, remember the um, fallen through transfer uh, to Real Madrid of a couple of seasons ago before he signed a new contract to Old Trafford. So you'd have to think that, you know, anyone who you know, has a newborn child, doesn't really want to miss those first few months or indeed any of their um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, formative years. And if she is determined not to move to Manchester, then perhaps this is the beginning of the end for David De Gea at Manchester United, both for personal and football reasons. De Gea and his partner, um, Edun Garcia, who's a, a pop singer in Spain, have been together as a couple for a long time and have been apart in, in terms of geographically apart for a long time too. You're right that De Gea has wanted to go back to Spain, was happy to join Real Madrid in that famous transfer that fell through over faxes not being sent at the, the right minute to um, meet FIFA international transfer regulations and, and has pushed for a move subsequent to that. 
Um, I think it's it's also fair to say that De Gea's first choice was not to stay at Manchester United when he signed that contract and that Manchester United were kind of forced into paying him that money because they left it too late to uh, to negotiate the deal um, and got to a stage where they were concerned that they were going to lose the player under freedom of contract and rather than lose a top performer under freedom of contract decided that the the better route to go down was to meet his huge wage demands and and effectively put themselves in the position they're in now um so yeah i, I think this is it's it's reasonable to argue that the better solution for De Gea would be to move to Spain. The question is, how does he get that move to Spain? Um, Real Madrid are financially compromised at present. They have very um, strong targets and, and an ambition to sign Kylian Mbappe. Um, they have spent a lot of money on the goalkeeper position. Thibaut Courtois has not been as good a solution as they expected them to be. But if they decide to move Thibaut Courtois out to let to get De Gea in, they have a similar conundrum as who, who do you shift Courtois to? Can you get Courtois to leave? Who takes on his salary? So it's not, that's not an obvious resolution. In terms of Henderson, De Gea and, and, and chances they've had to play, well, De Gea's been in goal for 29 of Manchester United's Premier League and Champions League games this season. He's conceded 37 goals and kept 10 clean sheets. Um, so his numbers are worse per game, but a lot of that comes down to the 6-1 defeat to Tottenham early in the season. Henderson's had just five Premier League and Champions League games, He's conceded five goals and kept two clean sheets in those. Um, one cha- Champions League game conceded two goals and I think that that probably counted against him that he, he didn't step up in the most important game he was asked to play in. But certainly Henderson's argument that he hasn't had the opportunities he expected to have, um, I think is is justified. Um, what's, what I think is going to catch um, Henderson by surprise is the idea that United might just say, well, thank you very much. If you aren't happy waiting, um, we'll let you go to one of those other Premier League teams and uh, we'll take up an, an option of signing another goalkeeper from elsewhere because we've found what we think is a better solution. That's that's what they're examining at present. I'm not saying that's going to be the outcome, but I think the fact that they're even looking at that and uh, and talking to representatives of other goalkeepers in the European market is a telling one. Given Ed Woodward's um, history in terms of disposing of players who are not wanted, Duncan, um, I wouldn't be surprised if Henderson was asked to sign a contract until 2040 before uh, he was actually allowed to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Ed Woodward, uh, Manchester United announced financial results uh, this week as well. Um Interestingly, uh, even despite the pandemic and, of course, the lack of match-day revenue, um, their uh, overall revenue and profit, etc., cetera, uh, did not suffer too badly, although the debt, of course, which is the scourge uh, in terms of Manchester United fans, uh, owed to the Glazers of increased to £455.5 million. Um, but Duncan, you notice something else which is very interesting in terms of the um, way in which United earn money and also indeed their influence on how they will earn money in future years regarding Champions League football. Yeah, yeah, net debt up 16.4%, which they say is a, a result of drawing down £60 million of their available £200 million credit lines, which you'll remember they increased during um, the first stage of the pandemic. Um, they made a profit, uh, operating profits on a six-month basis went down £54.9 million to £21.4 million. But as you say, making a profit in the pandemic um, era is an impressive financial result. 
Why did they make a profit? Essentially because the broadcast revenues rocketed on a six-month period uh, relative to the, the same six months uh, a year ago by 60.1% to 156.3 million and actually became 55% of their total revenue. Why? Because they were in the Champions League. So you can look at this as a, a very clear indicator of why the Glazers are obsessed with qualifying the team for Champions League football and why managers have lost their jobs when it looks when they've either failed to qualify them for the Champions League or they look like they're going to fail to qualify the team for the Champions League and why Solskjaer's position or one of the reasons why Solskjaer's position was under such scrutiny last season um, as it looked like he might fail to get them back into the Champions League this year. That broadcast revenue is the difference between profit and loss um, and taking up a bigger share of their total revenue because match day revenue is gone than ever before. Uh, it shows that Champions League qualification is, is key to their balance sheet. And you're looking at this in the context of, okay, they expect COVID to go away. They're talking about expecting to have supporters back into the stadia next season or at possibly before the end of this season in, in, a, in a limited degree. But they're also talking quite a lot about European football. Um, we know that Ed Woodward and Manchester United have been um, instrumental in discussions about a European Super League. And there's a statement that that Woodward made to investors at the start of the conference call they give on, on announcing these re results about European football, which I think is quite telling in the context of what they've been doing with the Super League. He says, in Europe, we continue to play an active role through the ECA, that's the European Club Association, in discussions on the future of UEFA's European club competition after the current competition cycle ends in 2024. While many details are yet to be resolved, we look forward to seeing the full final proposal from UEFA that we anticipate will include a greater involvement of clubs in the governance and control of the competition. And of course, a new format with greater appeal for fans and which crucially will continue to go hand in hand with thriving domestic leagues. So there he is talking to investors about UEFA changing and changes to European competition that will give clubs more control of the competition, that will change the format um, and still allow them to remain in the Premier League, uh, take the, the big financial revenues they make from Premier League football and couple them with greater financial revenues that they expect to get from a new European club competition, which has been you know, the subtext to all of this discussion about a European Super League. And I don't think it's a surprise that this is important to them, along with uh, the, the traditional stuff that Richard Arnold talks about in these conference calls about setting up TikTok accounts and, and being on track for opening a Theatre of Dreams experience centre in Beijing, the first of, of 14 that they've contracted to do. Um, I think they see that TV revenue and, and the expansion of TV revenue that the observers expect to happen as we move towards a European Super League competition is where the big money will come in for Manchester United, for the Glazers and for the investors who are, who are coupled with the Glazers in the, in the American stock market. Interesting. As far as I know, that Red Devils Cafe franchise is still closed um, <laughs> in Beijing as well as uh, Bangkok, etc. Uh, so I don't know how that's working for you, Ed, but, you know, good luck. Ian, there's also, you know, talking about that kind of stuff, there's a, a, another classic Richard Arnold line in there um, where, you know, he's detailing all these mainly e-commerce and social media um improvements the club have made and and how how good it looks for the bottom line uh, and he ends by saying ultimately the strong commercial engine of this club inspired by our commitment to deliver the engagement that our fans demand drives a virtuous cycle and fuels our ability to continuously and sustainably reinvest in the team fortifying our club's future not just over seasons but over decades which all sounds great until you look at the results on the field well, I was going to say, um, just listening to those uh, phrases, Duncan, 
made me think that that's exactly the kind of stuff that will send my United fans to sleep along with Daniel James's runs uh, down the, the right and left wing. So I'm not sure that um, Richard Arnold's going to be impressing anyone who's buying a season ticket at Old Trafford for next year, um, if that's his best selling point. Our best selling point in today's podcast is the one and only, the great white, and that of course is Graham Hunter. Neighbour of Juan Laporta, who is the favourite to win the uh, presidential election in Barcelona this Sunday coming, and golfing partner uh, as well. And we spoke to Graham earlier. Well, it's the biggest story in European football, if not world football at the moment. And that, of course, is the crisis at Barcelona at board level. While the team improves slightly under manager Ronald Koeman. Uh, the election of a new president of the club this Sunday uh, has taken on a lot of twists and turns with regards to who might win, what they're promising and what will be done in the future. But all of this has been overshadowed by the fact that there have been arrests and allegations uh, against certain administrators at the camp now and I'm very, very pleased to say that uh, to explain and help us fathom out exactly what's going on is, of course, the doyenna of Spanish football, Mr. Graham Hunter, who joins us now live from Barcelona. In fact, live on his way to the golf course, which is um, very nice. I hope your handicap's improving. It's 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 very nice, but it's also too much detail to reveal. And at the, at the, at the end of that big sort of... Um, Arabian Nights build-up. I thought you were going to say, I'm very <laughs> glad to say that, that, that Bumper Graham isn't one of those who was arrested. So, <laughs> now, Listen, now, that's probably the only time you've not been arrested. Now that we've got over that, uh, Bump. Uh, no, um, look, lads, it's a, it's an intricate, uh, fascinating, embarrassing, uh, long-running story in, in terms because... And and it it it, it sucked up home because on Monday I was working away and I, <clears throat> I didn't go out my front door all day, and then the very next day the guy who sort of runs the block of flats um, said to me, well, "Where were you yesterday?" I, said, I was working. He said, "Well, you should have been out in the, on your corner, like literally on my street corner, because um, all the cops and the and the media, the media for the uh, city were all standing there, uh, queuing outside Joseph Maria Bartomeu's flat." Because he's got a little pierre tear since his uh, marriage broke up, and it's just a single, uh, a tiny little flat happens to be fifty meters from my front door. So that little street was the, the hub of activity. This is unbelievable. Mental, you, yeah, say, you, you, yeah. you actually live next to the president of Barcelona. And apparently so. Yeah. Apparently <laughs> so. I know. I, I think he likes to say that. No, I I live next to a bumper Graham. Anyway, <laughs> the, the long and short is that the first. Um, noticed that anything was amiss was um, workers at the camp now um, saying on social media, we, we've been locked out of our offices. So if they arrived, it, it's, you know, it's not a working environment at the camp now where everybody's got a pile in at 8.30 or 9. And um, there are some who come in at 10 and, and but maybe work till 9. And there were quite a few saying uh, we've been locked out of our offices by the cops. And it was part of an operation. We should probably find that found out from um, a statement given by what's called the Financial Investigation Division of the Mossos to Squadron. Mossos to Squadron are, are effectively the uh, more serious crime branch of the cops in Barcelona. And they um, tucked away four of the uh, board members or board employees into various different investigative suites and a couple of police stations. They also went to um, not all of their homes, but three of the homes and into Camp Nou to, um, to sequestrate documents. And they had search warrants, so they, they were uh, nosing around in just about everything that they could find. And the following day, having two of the men having spent the night in the cop shop, uh, locked up, they they went to the uh, the investigating magistrate, um, Ariana Gill, and the statement that was put out said, "Look, this is an ongoing in investigation. It's lasted a year, which is true. No doubt you'll want to know the background to that." 
but effectively these guys had to um, get out on bail, um, particularly Bartomeu, the <clears throat> departed president who did a runner in last autumn. You know, he, he's been, yeah, given that both of you, and therefore I, I'd imagine the majority of your listenership have followed Barcelona closely for many years. To say that this is potentially the most disgraceful president in Barcelona's history means that he's topping a, a long and inglorious list. So basically, what is the state of play right now, Graham, with regards to where this goes? Obviously, um, people could potentially be charged under Spanish courts. What is bizarre? Uh, was that uh, someone speeding by in a motorbike there? Probably... Uh, Barcelona player. <laughs> we have a, we have a, listen when when Sam and I go to golf, we have outriders all the time. We're important. Oh, okay, fair Move enough. On. <laughs> um, in terms of what's the state of play, what potential charges could be brought, Look, as well it, as, as, as it, well as what might the consequences be for the club? Because part of the charges are around um, social media engagement, um, which we and you have spoken with with us on the podcast. Um, extensively with regards to smearing their own players and staff. That's right. That's right. Well, look, you're right. I think in the autumn we did a <clears throat> something about uh, an easy guide to when, you know, first of all, uh, a small minority of the board debunked because they were they were fully against the way in which the remnant of the board was acting. So. Just to recap what we said then for those that are new listeners, um, about a year ago, um, it, it was alleged, and long live radio journalism, uh, a local radio station called Sir announced, and it was a beautiful um, honey trap, really. They announced um, on air that they believed that Football Club Barcelona had hired a firm called uh, 14 Ventures uh, to specifically turn social media opinion against a potential rival for the presidency because in February 2020 it was guaranteed that they were that the board was in this last year and a half that there had to be by constitution elections for the presidency in summer 21 that was guaranteed so there was this idea from the, the sun king that there would be a, a dauphin and that effectively there was a guy called Emily Rousseau who Bartomeu wanted to be his successor. Unfortunately for him, he found out that Rousseau had a mind of his own, objected to the way in which the board was carrying on. And I don't know who leaked to um, radio station Sir, but there's a direct link between the story coming out and this man, Rousseau, who's now a footnote uh, because he stood up to what was going on, spoke out, threatened with legal action as the radio station were. And effectively, the allegations were that the current board had hired this firm for a million euros to besmirch a man called Victor Font, who'll be standing in Sunday's elections, to besmirch Chavi, to besmirch a man called uh, Joma Rauras, who is an extremely powerful uh, commercial figure in in broadcasting in uh, in Spain, not just in Catalonia. He happens to be a, a Barca fan and, and Catalonia-based, but also that this social media uh, enterprise was supposed to badmouth Piquet and badmouth Messi. And the concept, because what's not alleged, what is factual, is that that took place. The concept was to foul the air so that there would be a general feeling that it was important to support Bartomeu on his issues and his appointed Dauphin coming into the last year of the, the reign of the board. That that's bad enough, um, and and to me, that makes my skin crawl. That you you could be working for somebody who with whom you're negotiating a new contract. You could be working for a president who's asking you to win trophies, who's asking you to take a pay cut during the COVID, which you know there are long and and sometimes quite heated negotiations before Barcelona squad took a seventy percent pay cut and deferrals. Most of them haven't been paid this season at all. And, you know, while it, objectively that was patently the right thing to be doing at the height of the pandemic crisis, it still meant that there had to be a little bit of give and take, that there had to be some degree of uh, um, unilateral feeling that the captains are advising the squad correctly to trust the board. And it turns out this man was all the while 
spending a seven-figure sum allegedly to 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 crap on these senior players who he was then asking to go out and, and win trophies or to be up to Bayern and get beat eight two or whatever it is. So the the long and short of the story is that during last year there were many episodes that led to what's happened this week. So for example. Of course, in any big operation, uh, organization, pardon me, there's a compliance officer. The compliance officer is a female. She investigated, she proposed, presenting to the board. And pres- ex-president Bartomeu, in charge at the time, refused it. So she, she cleverly presented to a subcommittee. And once that was done, Bartomeu, and, and the evidence was, was clear and besmirching, Bartomeu sacked her, kicked her out. And this was the point at which... Um, I think eight members of the board quit and Rousseau, the appointed um, heir and successor, spoke out and used this phrase, which at the time was legally injudicious, but now it doesn't look far wrong. In interviews, when he quit the board, he said, somebody's had their hand in the till. And the key thing you were asking about there, Ian, is that this million euros, which was spent to this, this firm which promised to turn social media opinion against certain people and in favour of the board. There are spending checks. Again, as in any big company, any big club, there, there's only a certain amount that you can spend without having to get board approval. But as long as the sum was under €200,000, it could be snuck through. And therefore, what is alleged, what the financial branch of the Mosses Squadron and this investigating magistrate are trying to prove, is that there was a deliberate policy of several payments under 200,000 so that the majority of the board were unaware of it and it totted up to its 1.1 million. Now, whether there was more money spent that's uncovered, well, that's for the cops to find out. Equally, just to tie up, because you mentioned the players, Ian, Gerard Piquet spoke out in a very long um, interview in a Catalan newspaper, again, late autumn, to say how disgusted he was that um, one of the, the these four who've been arrested this week, Jamal Masvara, was still at the club because having been the sort of chief of staff, it, while these allegations were coming out and the radio station did the honey trap of saying, this is what we believe, Barca said they would sue, and then the radio station came up with a second deluge of, of evidence. They, they won a, a journalism prize for it. And... You know, it was game set and matched the radio journalists compared to the board. Absolutely took the pants down in public. And Pique said, look, this guy Masferrer was, was, we were told as players that he was suspended off duty and suspended from pay. What it turns out is he paid all along and now they put him back on duty. He said, how do you think that makes us feel and me feel? And to tie up just at the end, the three of us spoke a great deal about the way in which Messi exhibited his fury at the club when he wanted to leave and join Manchester City last August. The famous um, registered delivery letter that he sent in. And when he gave his interview, he said, look, I'm, I'm now I'm aware that I'm not being allowed to go. And I'm sorry if I've done any damage to the fans, but I've been lied to again and again and again by the president. That phrase um, looks a lot more striking and it should cause a great deal more empathy now that we know that Messi and, and his uh, entourage had gone to the president about these uh, allegations that he was paying a social media. I mean, when you, even when you say it aloud, he was paying a social media company crap on the greatest player they've ever seen. I mean, anyway, he, and, and it, it was made clear by Messi that he'd been assured that the, the, the president said, well, I know, I know nothing about this. Well, I mean, I don't know what language is allowed in the podcast, but... You know, the forgiveness words, forgiveness sake word is coming out, coming out of my mouth. And I can't hold it back. It's just, it's, if there isn't a crime alleged here that they can go to jail for, um, for paying a company to, to shit on your own players, but there should be. And if found guilty of the financial malfeasance that they're accused of, the penalties range from six, six months to four years. This being Spain, if they're convicted, that I wouldn't hold your breath and be absolutely convinced that once convicted, they would go to jail. But that's what's up for grabs. The timing of this, Graham, six days before the election, what what are your thoughts on why the police yeah. went in this week with 
so much on the line in a few days in terms of who gets selected as Bartomeu's replacement as president. In a grown-up grown world, Duncan, I understand that that's a fair point because we're, we're, we're educated through experience to believe that there are very few coincidences in, in matters of such um, confluence of timing. I, I would say that, just to be clear, then, there are three men standing for the presidency on Sunday. Only one uh, was a member of Bartomeu's uh, board. That's a guy called Tony Fraser. It, it would be simply on what Tony Fraser is like, what he believes, what he says. It would be an utter disgrace. I'm no Coulet, I'm not Barcelona, but objectively, watching one of uh, Europe's big clubs having been run down from a treble in 2015 to where they were at last season, Tony Fraser would be. Um, you know, like handing the keys of a space shuttle to somebody who can't see or hear. You know, it's just, it's just it would just be a, just a shambles. He is the only one that stands to be completely tainted by the Bartomeu reign and this Bartomeu affair. Because Laporta might benefit from this because he's long, long, long been uh, a ferocious opponent of not only Bartomeu, but Bartomeu's predecessor, Sandro Rossi. The man in the middle is, is the one who's caused it all, is going to get nothing. You know, um, it's a tortoise in the air. Victor Font was the one that was uh, giving the, 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 the old board the runs a year ago because he was a, a credible, articulate, young, dynamic candidate who appeared to have Chavi in his team and was beginning to pick up a number of different people who'd been important to the original change of regime back in 2003, when there had been such dynamism invested into the Football Academy, into the football, um, the first team, the, the choosing of Chiqui Pagares, then choosing of Rijkaard, eventually These people were being agglomerated to, to Victor Pont's um, campaign. And that's what was, was giving Bartomeu and his, and his cohorts the runs. And he's standing on, on Sunday, but gradually he's literally been, um, you know, carpet back by, by Laporta. Laporta has gone to a, a really big number of people who, who were in uh, Victor Font's team and somehow, magically, they popped up on Laporta's team. Font says that they were pressurised, bullied, whatever. That's between those people. Um, but you asked about the arrest. It, it does look as if it's connected, but I see a minor benefit to Laporta, who is going to win anyway. He's done he's done such an incredible campaign, not having declared um, only a couple of months ago, to declaring and exploding into his, his jovial, hail fellow well-met, clever political, hard-nosed wrangling. He's gone from zero to hero in an amazing amount of time. And whether it proves that everything that he's done in order to win this election has been, has been above board or whether he's kicked a few shins, you know, history only listens to the winners, I guess. So, um, Duncan, it looks linked, but I fail to see even Laporta, that he had the clout to organise the judicial investigator to get the police raids in the week of the elections at if there was a really big and clear benefit and it was going to, you know, shift the uh, election in one direction, I, I, I buy that it's very suspicious time. Right now, I, I don't see it. I guess the reason I asked that question is over the last week or so, we've seen Fresher promising to spend 250 million euros of money that he would raise by selling part of the club. Mm. Um, on yet more expensive signings, which um, is a very clear presidential um, gambit. Vote for me, and I'll get I'll get you more big name players. Is there no sense that that has been bought by the Barcelona support? I, I don't. I, I genuinely don't think so. It, it, to to, to uh, polling and predictions are two um, notoriously risky sports. But Laporta has uh, put together such a sweet ticket. He's dominated the media, although the media are obliged to give interviews to Font and Fraser. 
And Fraser in debates has done better than than he should have done, knowing if anybody's paid attention, knowing what kind of guy he is. He's done yeah. better in debates and he has made those promises. So 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 have the other two. And it's generally accepted that uh, and although I'm not willing to go into the details, I, I know the amount of money that Laporta has as a credit line and it's three times as big as Fraser. And whether he gets him or not, and that's obviously a matter that you two spend a lot of your expertise on, Laporta's number one goal is to bring Erling Haaland. And they're deep in negotiations to try and elevate their way up what is a, a very long and very powerful queue. And whether he does get it or not, my only point is that there are equivalent style promises from Laporta that... You're right, that then the socios, then the membership need to judge who they fancy more, which promises they believe more. So, fair point. Um, it, it may have, but it would be taking a sledgehammer or a crack of peanut. I'm sure I saw Tony Fraser in the um, the Rat Pack show in Vegas a few years ago. So, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he'd go back to that job if he doesn't get elected president. Yeah, there is something of the night about him. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, so, Big question, I guess, that most fans in football um, want to uh, learn the answer to. And, you know, we just want your opinion because no one's got a crystal ball which can predict uh, the future. Um, What happens to Leo Messi in the summer, uh, depending on who wins the election and uh, what Barcelona can present to him with regards to his future? My, my opinion is that Leo Messi's state of happiness is, you know, polemically different now to that which it was in August. Um, guaranteed to stay? No, that would be very, very foolish to say. But should Laporta win, there is a good relationship between Laporta and Team Messi. Secondly, if the credit line that I've been assured Laporta has genuinely exists, then they can afford to offer. Uh, Leo Messi, something like the the going rate for a, a pretty decent footballer who's 34. Um, and what's more, that credit line should assure paying off some of the instant uh, debts that accrue uh, this summer and the adding talent. So my view is that the, that the likelihood of Messi staying um, has augmented. And okay, it's gone up from a very, very low point, but I think that likelihood has increased and if Laporta wins, will increase. So where, where do you think it is then, Graham? And if he decides against staying at Barcelona, where do you most expect to see him play his, his next football at? Gosh, that's... Um, okay, n- number one, it, 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 you're asking me to estimate and therefore I think that it's gone up from a sort of 25% chance of staying up to, in my view, some somewhere like 55%. And I think Sunday's election with the the result that Messi wants will increase it again. Throw into the fact that I think, I I believe, he'll have been delighted to see Bartomeu being brought to justice at at this stage. It's still an allegation. It's still, um, in quotes, innocent until proven guilty, uh, which I expect him to be. Um, So I, I think there's a conglomeration of facts which have changed the perspective, Duncan. If he did leave, then I'd have to start any answer by saying I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I have never believed that Pep Guardiola is mad keen to bring Messi to the club, but the owners are. And Pep Guardiola will, as he often does, say, okay, you pay my salary, you're the bosses, I'll fall in line. Um, I'm certain that Messi will know that. It's absolutely clear that Manchester City have not lost the desire to bring Leo Messi. And given some of his form in recent months, I think it, it, it backs those of us who said that he's, he's not even at 33 and a half a must blush. Moreover, um, look, it, it, things haven't all been wine and roses. Pochettino took over at uh, Paris Saint-Germain. But with the way in which Paris Saint-Germain are attempting to guillotine the negotiations with Neymar and Mbappe and be clear about what they're offering to Messi. 
um, i.e. Be, be, be the third in that trio. That's damned attractive. Playing for Pochettino for Messi would be damned attractive. So you're the experts on those sides of this story. And I, I'm, I'm not sure where he would choose, personally. I have an inkling that the idea of Neymar and Poch probably wins. Um, and I think there's slightly more chance of SE understanding French than there is of him becoming fluent in English. That, again, that's just a point of view. It's not a fact. But if we are talking in July, and, and Messi's made it clear that there won't be an announcement until the season ends, and uh, uh, boys, if you watched him leaping up and down in, in, in as much joy as he would have felt when Barcelona qualified for his first Champions League final back in 2006, when they beat Sevilla in, in midweek, 3-0 in extra time, having been down 2-0 in the first leg, and you saw Messi going absolutely mental on the pitch, you can tell that the, that the narrative, which people thought, OK, I've heard that too often, I'm bored of it, was true when it was made clear that he wanted a healthy competitive club with, with astonishing wages too, but he wanted a healthy competitive club that could win trophies. You go back, anybody that's listening to this, go back and look at those images and you get a really clear feeling about the way in which the possibility of him staying has changed. What's been the big difference into the, in the way the team is playing? Why have they managed to make themselves competitive again when they got to such a low edge at, at one point this season? Kuman, first of all, who, who remains flawed and has made flawed decisions this season, has outdone himself in terms of the way in which he's twisted and turned the tactical formations, which given who's available to him, what opponents they play, have, have sparked a revival. Um, he's been imperfect, but he's made a huge difference. Where he's done himself again is in June to Football Club Barcelona, where a lot of people in Spain sitting, well, our reference point isn't Everton or Southampton or the good days at Ajax or Benfica, it's Valencia. And he said very early on, I made mistakes saying I wouldn't do it the same way now. And he's been good to his word. There are a lot of people in that squad, players in that squad, who say, we don't track practice defending corners, defending free kicks sufficiently. There is one player who came from a, a black and white strike club um, who can't believe how um, how the, the how would I put it, the intensity of the care for the players and the structures and the systems differs between where he was where Pjanic, where he is now. Mm-hmm. But Kuman has demanded certain things every day from the players and said, if you do X, I will do Y. And he's been true to his word. He spent a lot of time talking directly to Pep, but they may see a bumpy relationship. But nonetheless, Cumin and Pep are close. And early on, he spent a lot of time on the phone to Pep Guardiola saying, give me your opinion of Messi and outhand. And the Cumin messi handling has been exemplary. Absolutely exemplary. And what he's brought back is... Um, Probably the most negotiated, respectful relationship Messi's had with a coach since Tito Villanova. There were, there were good moments and bad moments with Luis Enrique and a treble. There were up and downs with Valverde, but a, a feeling of, of, you know, I respect you, you respect me, and we'll, we'll, just, we'll just work on. But Valverde intervened very little in, in, in what Messi wanted. Kerman's different. Kerman has gone front foot. He's spoken clearly. He said, this is what I want. But he's rewarded Messi with constant support in public when the level of play wasn't great. And around Messi, what's changed is he adores, adores playing with Pedri. He feels that there's an understanding with De Jong. He knows that Ansu is coming back and the two of them clicked immediately. There's now, I mean, genuinely, there's now a real click between him and Brathwaite. Griezmann and Messi have worked ultra hard in private, not just on the pitch, to click. And it's there. When Griezmann erupted into form around the turn of the year and scored game after game, if you watch the way in which he fed and understood Messi and the way they celebrated together, there has been a a sea change in the football and personal relationships between Messi and about six or seven players in the squad. And the squad isn't good enough to be ultra competitive yet. Um, there's a lot of inexperience. It's quite a spindly squad. They get pushed around quite easily. 
and there's a certain lack of quality in, in particular areas. If 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 Laporte's got 800 million in his pocket when he wins on Sunday night, then corrections can be made. And therefore, there is no way that Messi is looking at this and saying, well, the future's guaranteed here. That would be, that's wrong. But, you know, instead of opening the curtains and seeing pissing rain coming into his face, he's opened the curtains and there's a couple of daffodils sprouting, the sun's coming out and the gardener's cutting the lawn. So when Joan Laporta wins the election and he, um, and he rents the flat next door to yours because he has to be beside Bob for Graham. <laughs> and he, uh, he says, I've got, I've got this credit line three times as much as any of the, the opponents. Um, tell me, Graham, where should I be investing my 800 million euros to turn this team into <laughs> European champions again? Yeah, good one. First of all, pay your creditors. I think they're about, well, and your, your primary creditors are the players. You know, the, the club's all messy, I think, in the region of 60 million. There are many players I've pointed out who haven't had, um, haven't had their salaries and therefore do that. Then pay your creditors, you know, pay the clubs from whom you, you know, you, you're in debt and, and who you're going to want to do business again. And um, once you've done that, um, there is no question that Laporte believes, rightly or wrongly, that he can get Holland. Um, after which they undoubtedly, you can tell we're at the golf club now, after which there is undoubtedly a big need to have a stronger defence. Um, I think they have a problem at left back, at centre back, and I think that they're probably going to need uh, um, an outstanding pivot. Um, once you've done that, and, and once we accept that the, the B team, in, in a state of necessity, has proven to have far, far better resources than anybody involved in the organisation believed, at least there is now a healthy perspective going forward. Well, as the limo pulls up at, uh, in uh, Graham's uh, exclusive club and he dons <laughs> his tartan plus fours, uh, we shall say thank you very much and wish him luck uh, for straight down the middle uh, in ratback style on the tee this morning. Uh, thank you very much, Graham Hunter. Uh, we will hope to speak to you soon and uh, good luck on the course. Cheers, fellas. Four. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure to have uh, Mr. Hunter, uh, obviously the man who brings you the big interview podcast, as well as some of the best punditry on La Liga TV. Uh, if you haven't uh, seen or heard him, I'm sure you probably have. He seems to be everywhere, including golf courses. Then please check that out. Um, we did bring you news uh, on last week's podcast um, about Celtic striker um, Odson Edward and the interest in him from Premier League clubs. We can now uh, reveal that it is our understanding that Leicester City have had a formal uh, bid rejected for the Celtic striker. Um, the bid was around £14 million, with Celtic valuing the player at much more than £11 million, more than that at £25 million. And uh, obviously, Brendan Rodgers had Edward as one of his key players when he was still at Celtic, Duncan. Um, do you think Leicester... I mean, Leicester are not, obviously, a club who... Um, you know, don't have money to spend. I suspect this was an opening uh, gambit rather than, you know, what they actually value the player at. And I think we can probably uh, see them come back in with uh, a bid much closer to what Celtic's valuation is. Yeah, I, look, I think this is intelligent move by Leicester City. Um, obviously, you you look at their performances, their excellent performances in, in the Premier League over the last couple of seasons, but th there's a dependency on Jamie Vardy. Um, and they would clearly be strengthened by getting another striker in who they can depend on to get goals um, in and, and of a slightly different type to Vardy too um, when Vardy is unavailable or in tandem with them. Um, we, when we talked about this last week, we said that Celtic are trying to sell a player who wants to leave um, with a limited amount of time on his contract into a, a tight market. Um, I can see why Leicester are saying, like, here's money on the table. Um, it's available. Uh, 
don't forget we are here and uh, and try and knock out competitors like Arsenal, who, as you stated last week, have an interest in the player. Um, and also they have a, you know, a card here to sell to Edouard, which is that they have been up and, and around the top of the Premier League for a couple of seasons now. Um, they have a good chance of, of Champions League qualification this season. They, they'll still to secure it, but they're, they're in a much better position than Arsenal, for example, to, to get that place, uh, in the Champions League. Um, and I think any footballer looking at their squad would say there is a lot of quality there and, and quality at a good age. Um, and, a you know, a possibility that they will continue. Uh, to be up and around the top of the, the Premier League and a good platform to demonstrate your ability in those two competitions, um, playing for a more prominent club. If you do well there, the possibility you move on to one of the top clubs in Europe. So I think strategically clever by Leicester. It is, and I suspect as well that they won't be the only um, bidders for Wilson Edward, who has proven himself um, not just in the SPFL, but also in European football uh, during his time at Parkhead. It is, of course, the second pod of the week, which means it's time for the Donkey Award. We're taking inspiration uh, this week from the very interesting and entertaining exchange between Marcus Rashford and his captain, Harry Maguire, um, during their 0-0 draw with Crystal Palace, uh, when um, Maguire uh, berated Rashford, who, of course, is the darling of uh, British culture uh, for his work. Uh, in um, making the government um, back up on their promises to um, provide free school meals during this pandemic uh, to get on side. And um, Rashford's response was, um, and you probably get this bleeped out, but I'm going to say it anyway, f*** off you f*** head, which apparently Maguire's heard before quite a few times, Duncan. He certainly experienced quite a few nil-nil draws this season, the... They're uh, the, the specialists in the Premier League for that particular score, which is ironic given uh, what we're told about how exciting Manchester United are and how attacking their it's, football is. It's a Manchester United way. So uh, let me just open the golden envelope uh, for the Marcus Rashford Award for calling out your captain and get the nominations for Duncan to decide... It is award seasons, of course. I'm sure you'll notice that the Emmys and Golden Globes are happening. So, you know, we always like to compete um, with uh, you, those you, prestigious events. Are you saying the price of golden envelopes has gone up, Ian? It has, unfortunately. Gold has gone up in general, Duncan. I don't know if you've noticed on the stock market, but it's uh, certainly it's bigger than Bitcoin. Uh, so uh, our first nomination is... Everyone at Manchester United calling out Roy Keane for calling them out in that infamous MUFC TV uh, interview that he gave um, before being um, driven out the door by uh, Sir Alex Ferguson um, for what he said about his teammates. Um, The second nomination, probably not very surprisingly, is... Wayne Bridge for calling out his captain, John Terry, after some um, nefarious business, let's just say, regarding his then partner and mother of his son, Jaden. And the third, probably not as high profile, but I urge you, if you get the chance, and so will Duncan, um, to find this on your social media channels or on YouTube, um, the footage, and that is a fight on the field during a, and I'm using the um, air, you know, inverted commas here, friendly, um, of the Hearts captain, Craig Levine, and his centre-half partner, Stuart Hogg, who both got sent off in a game which was supposed to be a friendly for fighting each other, and it's quite a scene to behold, uh, albeit it was way back 
in the 20th century. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to hand over to you as always to choose your winner. A great set of uh, candidates here. Roy Keane falling out with an entire team and uh, ending his, his storied Manchester career, Manchester United career off the back of it. You have Wayne Bridge and John Terry who were, if not quite best friends, were pretty close to being best friends for a long time time when they were playing together at Chelsea and, and what went on there. But I, I think uh, I'm going to give it to Craig Levine and uh, and Graham Hogg, uh, partly because Craig Levine, of course, was a great Dundee United manager, but but mainly because the footage is is fantastic and, and the quality of um, of a left-handed punch that uh, that Levine <laughs> takes Graham Hogg out with is, is definitely something to be beholden. And two players sent off from the same team in a pre-season friendly um, for knocking lumps off each other in the penalty box is something you don't see very often in football. Joshua V. Fury, you've got nothing on Hogg versus Levine. That is the truth. Uh, as I said, uh, catch up on it wherever you can, and I'm sure you'll be entertained. Uh, as I hope, of course, you have been by today's podcast. Uh, if you have been, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. Also, uh, if you are w- uh, listening to the podcast on uh, YouTube or channel, then please turn on your notifications and you'll be the first to find out when the next pod has landed. Uh Please engage with us as well on our social media platforms, which is at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Duncan individually is at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at Garbo SJ. As you know, we love to hear from you and your views, so please do get in touch. Apart from that, please enjoy your weekend's football, and we will be back next week. Until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.